0: Hello, and welcome to KeeperCast, the Keeper of the Lost Cities podcast. I'm Sammy. And I'm Ben, And this is episode 19, brought to you by Key Fitzriana. Oh, gosh.
1: They're really trying to hard to smash all their names together. And I appreciate Shannon for it, but sometimes they just don't turn out great.
0: Yeah, so to, uh, to start off, we have some listener correspondence. We um, got a new message to my Tumblr, which is malamelting and i think it's fabulous we asked well okay last week we asked you guys to send us Cedric jokes so this week we did get a dedric joke or several ones in one um in one message but it says dedric jokes seem to be a hot topic right now but i don't have that many i'm feeling pretty burnt out i have a blazing love for puns they can always get me to light up so i'll let you know if i have any more Ah, uh, my creative spark seems to be flaring up I think your podcast kindled it. Now I'm ablaze with ideas. Most of them are flickering out, though, as my desire to pun for the moment has been doused. So that's it for now. And then puns aside, I love listening to KeeperCast. So, whoever sent this, I love you so much. (laughs) All I can say is thank you. Like,
1: whether you're one of those persons who just is effortlessly able to make puns, or whether you put the time and effort into making all of those things, like... Just incredible. Thank you so much. Absolutely amazing. A joy to read.
0: We also have a few um, Instagram messages. This message is actually about Bronte. Um, this was sent about a week ago, and it's it says, maybe Inflictor isn't a natural ability. Bronte could have gotten it from Stellar Loon and Sophie from the Black Swan, which I think is a really cool theory. Um, that, like, because inflicting is so rare, like that it has to be some sort of like artificial ability or something that doesn't come naturally. I think it's not something that like I had thought of before I had started like thinking about it, but it does seem kind of, um, it does seem pretty, I can't speak, it does seem pretty likely. <laughs> Just
1: due to how little we know about Stellar Loon, I'm hesitant to like say anything, but I. Think that it's a really neat point to the fact that Alicorns do get it naturally, so I'm not sure if it could be a completely artificial ability, but it being like semi-artificial, like our elves can't get it naturally, but if they change their genes to be modeled after whatever, then
0: that can occur. Yeah, or maybe it's like, yeah, maybe it's not entirely artificial, but. The Stellar Loon or other things could like create ways for it to be more likely for you to get that ability or like sort of forcibly trigger that.
1: I think were we the
0: ones talking about this the other time, a couple episodes ago
1: about Stellar Loon? I think we were. I yeah, I think I think that was us. Yeah. So then I think there are so many questions as to what Stellar Loon is that it's a really neat to deal with, but also slightly annoying because it's also like we all know how much Shannon loves her her secrets and her plots being discovered later on in the series, so I think it's really neat, and I'm really excited to learn more about it.
0: Um, our next message is from M. Thomas four fifty eight um, This one says, "Hi, I'm listening to episode twelve, and I heard you guys talking about the Elven population. I just wanted to say that because of the elven stereotypes, they think having more kids is bad, so they wouldn't usually have more than one kid per family, unlike humans, so they're living for millions of years, wouldn't really affect it as much as you would think. They still probably have a pretty big population, though, but I thought I would bring it up anyway.
1: I think, yeah, I think that's a really important point to make, but I also, like, let's look at the three main families we have here. Like, we have... Sophie's family, obviously, um, Grady and Edeline only had Jolie. We have Kessler's family who had four kids. We have the Vackers who are an incredibly high ranking family who still chose to have multiple children. And then we have Keith's family who obviously only had one child. I don't like, I th- yeah, it's really important to consider, but also, like, if the Vackers are willing to have more than one children, I feel like that says something about the prejudice, although it being present, not being half as restrictive as it is for multiple siblings.
0: Yeah, like, I think it's another case of seeing, like, there's a difference between what we've been told about, um, about how, like it's much more common to have an only child there's a difference between that and what we've actually been seeing in um in the elven families that we've met
1: yeah we like the the we we'll, we can say it time and again time and time again wow i also can't speak that it's just who knows how much the elven population is? It's, it's, it's flexible. It's depending on what we need for the scene. Does it need to feel like the elven population is small because we want to cause pressure? Then yeah, we'll make it seem that way. Do we want to show off how cool the elves are and how big they are? We can also do that right now. Cool. Like, it's all very flexible.
0: What I'm thinking about specifically is like, we may have talked about this. I don't quite remember, but in um the first book when Sophie was like, walking around Foxfire at, on her first day, and she was like, oh wow, this is huge, there are so many students here. But at the same time, we've been told that like elves usually only have only children, and their population isn't that big to begin with, which is why they need the matchmaking system. So you're kind of like, hmm, the things don't quite match.
1: Yeah. But then we also see the Vacker family at the beginning of flashback and they are huge like they fill an entire tribunal it's like once again like we don't have a solid point of reference for anything and if every single family is as big as the backers which logically stands they would be like the idea of just having a double check to make sure that you actually aren't related before you get too attached to somebody isn't the worst idea
0: i also think it's possible that Like, we've been told that the elven population is small, but we don't really know, like, what small means exactly or what it's compared to. So it's possible that it's just, like, maybe the elven population, like, at some point in history used to be bigger. So now the elves think it's small in comparison to that, even when, even if there are maybe, like, I don't know how many elves there would be, even if there are millions or billions of them. Yeah, when you talk about, like, at the elven
1: population at one time being get bigger, like, then you have to get into things where obviously the elven population doesn't really have the same rate as death to birth. Like, we have more people being born right now than people dying as a human species. Elves... I think would have even worse proportions just because they never die. They just kind of self-isolate at a certain point in their life. Like,
0: didn't they say that in the Wanderling Woods, there were only like a couple hundred trees? Yeah. So only a couple hundred elves have died, like, ever.
1: Or since they started the Wanderlings. So could there have been a large elven like genocide or plague or something like that at some point that would have caused an effect like that?
0: I mean, yeah, I think it's possible, because they were like, again, there's this like, there's this concept of of a war having happened in the past, but we don't really get the details on that, other than like, that was what um, ended in the treaty between the species, right? So, it's possible that there was some sort of huge loss of elven life, maybe before they started the wanderling system or something, that just kind of went unrecorded.
1: Yeah, and if we're and while we're kind of on the topic of war, something that I was kind of thinking about while rereading is that I find it very strange how different elves are okay with different levels of violence. Like, I can understand that from a species standpoint, like, you can't do violence, but different people would have different registers for that. But also, like, for someone not raised among elves, Sophie has by far the lowest tolerance to violence that we've seen from an elf.
0: Yeah, that's true. It does seem like a lower tolerance for violence, but it's also a different kind of tolerance for violence cuz I think there are like certain things that the elves are just like totally okay with. Um like the stuff we discussed in some of the war crimes episodes, but um that Sophie's just like guys, what the heck? I guess it's just
1: yeah, I was just thinking about it a lot more and it was just kind of like, "Huh, that's because, like, there's a difference, because, like, when we think about, like, the war crimes episode, like, that is rather, like, species. Like that's, like, when we think about it, like, Fitz isn't directly committing that crime, whereas, like, Bianna and Dex and Keith and all those guys are training themselves for physical violence, and they are far more comfortable with it than Sophie is. So I probably could have phrased that better, but less mental and more like physical violence actually injuring people.
0: Yeah, it does seem like um there are a lot of circumstances where the elves are like they seem capable of a lot more violence than they've than they claim to be. And I mean especially
1: and in this chapter we see it especially Grady. Oh yeah. <laughs> he fully like we've seen him burn a guy's hand off before like we know he's down he's down to do some he's down to do some stuff to put it lightly but like once again here we just see him making a guy punch himself in the face just just to protect his daughter yes but also like that was just what he was comfortable with and his first instincts anyways i can I won't go on another Grady rant, because we've been there. We've heard that. Grady's cool. But, uh, yeah, Grady's first instinct was to solve a problem with violence and threats, rather than the council who immediately went in with law and um, more agreements and promises.
0: So, yeah, this week we read chapters 39 through 51 of Everblaze which was, this is the section right after Kenrick died. Um, This is the section where we go to his funeral. A lot of stuff goes down. Um, Something that really struck me, like, from the very beginning of this section, was that Sophie is, like, finally getting angry. Like, we start seeing that, like, you know, maybe that... um, We start seeing that, like, after... Kenrick's death and she realizes that like, oh my gosh, he was killed because of the Never Scene. Like, she's just pissed.
1: And this is this is the first section in which we hear the name Neverseen, if I'm not wrong.
0: Right. Yeah, that's true. hmm This is the first
1: part of the series, three books in to actually name the villain of the series.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so that was that was really significant too. Um because we finally get like a name to you know those unnamed rebels, and like well, we knew about the we knew about the eye the eye design and the patch before, but now we can kind of really connect all those things and see we've got a name to put to the face,
1: yeah, it's just it's very interesting comparing the way that these earlier books play and are kind of written and are paced out compared to how things are now, something that I found really cute in this section was that of course um this is also the section where they um have Kendrick's planting, and I think uh I can't remember if this is this is after that this is near the end of the section. I'm just jumping right there apparently i but um there was this really cute moment between Fitz and Sophie where they talk about how Sophie thinks that Jolie might be her mom, and Fitz was super understanding of why she would not want to get that
0: confirmation.
1: And where'd that go?
0: <laughs> yeah, I I miss that, Fitz.
1: It's like, oh, come on. I Don't get me wrong. New Fitz, he's got so many things going for him. I'm interested to see where his character arc goes from here, but like... I just find it really interesting how much his character has flipped from being like, yeah, I can understand why you wouldn't want to know Julie is your mom, to, you know, you gotta, you gotta wreck the world, you gotta let them know that Bronze's your dad. They're not. That's Bronze, <laughs> not her dad, or at least her mom. I got them confused.
0: Something that, something else that I really liked about this section was Sophie's interactions with Grady and Edeline. Um, yeah, this part was just, like, full of them. There was, um, that, like, Adeline was giving her, like, was giving Sophie the somnoline, like, the sleeping thing, and then, um, we also had some parts with Grady, um, that we, like, talked about a little bit at the beginning of the episode, um, and I don't know, I always just, I always really like Sophie's interactions with, with Grady and Adeline, they're
1: just such good parents. I just, yeah, they're just really great people. But also, like, you mentioned Somnoline, and I feel like I'm feel like i pulling a, a Ladyzilla here, but, like, seriously, the elves are so obsessed. Like, we've got Stellar Loon, literally means Star Moon. Like, we've got Somnoline, which I don't know the exact meaning of the words, but it's like you literally put them on your eyes and you see infinite light. And you see the stars in the dark sky, like it's it's all it's all light, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Lights kind of their like, thing. <laughs> I get it. Lights lights pretty nice. I like. Can't say I prefer it to shadow, but I'm definitely less scared of it than shadow. Um, but yeah, just just weird. Sometimes it's just a little bit like it, it's not. It doesn't get repetitive, and it is very cool. But also like sometimes, sometimes I don't sometimes the naming contrivances get to me,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, also, I feel like at this point, like a lot of the naming, because they come from the same roots and they all have to do with light, like it's really easy to get them mixed up in my head, like somnoline, stellarline, God, what did she name the new
1: rock that we were introduced to the the rock made of light or whatever, oh, I don't even remember. <laughs> because the latest one there was Megsidian, which was like the uh Shadow Flux made into a rock but then there was like a Quintessence rock I I don't know yeah I don't I don't remember what that's called I can't remember what its name <laughs> is I also feel like that's just like a part of the series though because it's like we get introduced to so many new topics each book and then usually they're only relevant to that one book maybe they'll come back later but, like, it's very, it is, like, it is a middle school series, and it's very sectioned off, and you can see, like, each book is not its own contained story, but a very contained chapter of the series for the most part.
0: Yeah, um, this was a section with Kenrick's planting, and I did want to talk about that a bit.
1: <laughs> We've been beating around the bush of what really happens yeah. this chapter.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I was, I was really struck by this one part where, um, where Sophie was all, like, like, when, while the planting was happened, Sophie was, like, okay, I have to, like, stay strong and not, you know, I don't want to cry or let my emotions show through all that much, and then she started hearing people around her, like, whispering, like, oh, she isn't really sad, and that was, like, I don't know, that, that kind of, that kind of got me. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like we also see this coming up
1: a bit too in this series, and it's that same kind of thing that happens in Beauty and the Beast, where the series tends to have a like it has a negative view of the group as a mass, like as a, the group as a whole is usually against Sophie. So I feel like this is just another example of that coming into play. Like the group doesn't understand her, the group doesn't support her, the group is like because it's really like it's like the group is all elven society, and Sophie is of course changing and meant to change elven society but not really a part of it
0: yeah that's true i do think that it's like a really important part of the series actually that i think yeah for the most part elven society is not on sophie's side it must just it must just kind of exacerbate like all the negative feelings sophie's having like all of this trauma and just bad feeling about you know, pretty much all the stuff that's happened in these last eight books. Um, And then to just feel like your support... Like, she has a support system in her friends and her family, but to know that, um, like, the government and society in general isn't overwhelmingly for you.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, we we have seen them change in the first couple, like, in these last few books when they're, like seeing the truth of the world or whatever, but I, like, it is very interesting at this beginning section, seeing, like, like, like in a real-life situation, I don't think adults would react this way, but of course it's necessary for the series that they do.
0: Yeah, I agree with that, and I also think it's important that... It's important and it's pretty special about Kodok, I think that... um you kind of see both adults and children on either side of things. Like, you have the council, you have, you know, people like Alina who don't really support Sophie, but then you also have folks like Grady and Adeline who are just, like, you know, totally on her side the entire time. Um, So it's nice to see that, like, you have enough characters to be able to, to do that and have that diversity of thought yeah and it's not
1: it's not all kids versus adults or anything either, which is nice
0: well in in everblaze at least like Sina is pretty not on Sophie's side, but I think by legacy they've all kind of like they've all mostly learned to get over their differences at least among the kids
1: well i think in in legacy we see or not legacy but in never seen we say cena say like If you can save the dwarves, or if you can save the gnomes, I will try not to hate you as much. But she also had a not-so-great, like, an understandable reason, but also not a very good reason for hating somebody. But, yeah. So we don't really see that same conflict among the children that we used to. Yeah, and then... And then we have the, uh, the uh, big section of this chapter, uh, (laughs) when Sophie makes the mistake of, uh, going into an ogre's mind for... Sophie. The first, but definitely not the last
0: time. Dimitar. Fun times. So, the Ogre King, he shows up at Kendrick's planting, um, and Sophie makes some poor decisions. Uh...
1: (laughs) And I must, like... This may sound a little bit like I don't know, but I think that a lot of people often get defensive or not defensive but like uh I don't really know the proper word for it, but people often get on stuff saying like, "Oh, look at Sophie and Fitz being cognates. Like it only ever benefits Fitz. Nothing good ever happens for Sophie." But I think this is one of the very clear examples we have where the cognate thing makes Sophie stronger as well, because we see that Sophie by herself is unable to puncture whatever this, what whatever's going on in this guy's brain. Like it does not work. But when she is with Fitz later in this series, like yes, she can. She can see the ogre king doing
0: nefarious thoughts. I mean, there's this book is... Everblaze just has a lot of, like... One of the major themes is, like, Sophie and Fitz learning to trust each other. And this part just shows, like, exactly how important that really is because, like, yeah, Sophie is amazing and she can do all these amazing things, but she does have a limit and sometimes it takes other people, sometimes it takes Fitz to help her sort of reach more than that.
1: Yeah. And then it was... <laughs> It was funny later, just hearing about how Fitz was planning to tackle the Ogre
0: King. <laughs> yeah, I would have, I would have liked to see that actually happen. I would want to see what, what would go on. Yeah, we deserve to
1: see a version of the book where that happens. Forget annotated Keeper One. I want just Everblaze rewritten, where Keith, or where Fitz tackles the Ogre King.
0: Keith actually did tackle the Ogre King at one point, didn't he? Yeah, Keith. Keith
1: fully went. Well, he fully battled the ogre king. Like, good for him. But also, that—that's a scene that the podcast will get to someday. But I do have feelings about it.
0: Lady Cadence, what a queen! Love <laughs> Lady
1: <laughs> Cadence.
0: <laughs> like, just her—that whole bit where, like, she was able to essentially pre- single-handedly pre- prevent a war, an interspecial war, like. She's literally the only adult here who's like really knows what's how on. to do their job, yeah
1: <laughs> like God, the smartest thing the Black Swan ever did was like allowing Lady Cadence to join like she she took pity on them that day, she said, "Okay, look, you guys need my help, so I'm just gonna come here and give it to you, and they really needed it,
0: so um. Yeah, Lady Cadence is the best.
1: Yeah. I I am in full support of Lady Cadence any time of the year, any time of the day.
0: Also the thing with the gruesome dodge that they were talking about with um that was like that uh King Dimitar was able to do, that seems like That seems really terrible.
1: What was stranger was that, uh, reading that, it's like, I don't think that has ever come up once again.
0: I feel like that's something that the ogres would use. It seems useful. Uh. Yeah. It seems like it works on
1: elves. Like, why not? Is this something only the king can do? Why haven't we learned that? Was it just this one-time plot device that was forgotten later.
0: Even if it is something only King Dimitar can do, like, again, not to jump too far ahead and talk about an unrelated book, but, (laughs) but, um, Keith's battle with Dimitar, like, I feel like it would have been useful to Dimitar to use that then. I don't know. But it does seem kind of forgotten about.
1: Yeah, I think that is just completely forgotten about. <laughs> Generally, I feel like we've gotten, like, an expo... Like, we've kind of had different books about different series, but we haven't gotten that same kind of exposition that we got for the gnomes or the trolls in earlier books. Like, we haven't gotten that... We have a decent amount of exposition on goblins just because they've been in the- present in the series so far, and we have seen their capital, but we haven't... We've seen their capital and we've seen their biochemistry, but like, we still don't know the most about.
0: I mean, we've gotten like, we've gotten it in bits and pieces. I think like we've got some in Everblaze, some more never seen, like we learned a bit about their society when Roe, sort of, when Roe joined the team. but Yeah, we, we do know a
1: decent amount about them. I think that this is one of those examples of things that was just kind of brushed aside. Because I was just going to mention that, like, we do know that um, arranged marriages, for example, are a thing there. Like, that's something that
0: they do on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I feel like we've gotten those, like, little glimpses into their society throughout the series. But at the same time, we also don't know a ton about their history. Um, Whereas, like, we know all about the gnome's history and some other species. That would actually be something cool for like Lady Cadence to explain at some point, I think. I would love another excuse for Lady Cadence to be in there for another scene.
1: I think part of that too was because like getting to learn about like the city's capitals does a lot. Or learning about like where the cities came from, because I think that was one of the most expositional times for the goblins is when we visited Gildingham. And when there was this visit to Ravagog, yeah, we got some information on them. But we also, like, we missed out on that big opportunity of learning because both the times they've gone there have been for, like, in, like, aggressive trips.
0: Right. They weren't exactly diplomatic.
1: Yeah. They were trips meant. They were trips with a purpose, and usually the purpose was
0: to get something. Whereas, like, with Gildingham, it wasn't that scene at Gildingham wasn't like the center of or the climax of the whole book. It was kind of just something that happened, so there was a bit more time, like breathing room to spend on exposition.
1: Yeah, and it was it was a Yeah, and it was about grieving too. Like that scene isn't like when they spend time in Gildingham, it's not about Yeah, as you said, like it's it's break time. It's about them really experiencing And the reason why they went there was cultural. Like, they were there to honor somebody else's dead. I feel like, once again, like, we see this a lot, where it's like, there's so many different elements in the series that we could go over that sometimes others just get missed. Yeah, I was just mentioning, like, it's kind of like how we have the same problem with, like, a lot of characters. We also have a lot of species, so like there's a lot of different things and people that we need to learn about but we don't have the time to learn like all the details
0: about there's just like we've been given so much in terms of world building and in terms of characters and species so there isn't always like space or time to go into one of them really deeply so yeah afterwards um Oh, this is where we start, like, learning a bit about some, about, like, implanted memories. Um, mm Mm-hmm. Because Fitz is, like, realizing that he remembers all these star charts that Sophie sent him in perfect detail. So he's like, oh. This is also where we see, we see Sophie's, like, the image that Sophie has in her head of the Italian window that we end up going to and never seen. Yeah, so that... That's a, like, fun setup.
1: I think that, once again, though, that's, like, a set-off that's kind of, like, oddly played just because Sophie never gets the memory herself. Like, it, like it, yeah, it has, it has a good resolution, but it's also kind of like, huh, you don't actually get to learn about that for yourself from your own brain. It's still hidden from you and told to you by someone else
0: in your life. Yeah, so there's still, like... A lot of stuff in her brain that the Black Swan just put there, and it's kind of. It still feels a lot like she's like. Yeah, that she's like going with the Black Swan's plans instead of really figuring things out for her own.
1: Yeah, and this is at a point of the series where, like, we are used to seeing Sophie with this kind of mindset of the Black Swan knows more than me, I will just go with them. Well, she won't go with them, but they know more than us, and we are still unraveling
0: who they are. This is where we also get a bit of setup with the ability restrictor. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because of, um... Because Dex is kind of, like... Dex is sort of explaining how... Ooh, someone... I don't remember. But someone told him... um about that like the ability enhancer that he had created could um, possibly Teric. be turned into. Counselor Tarek, I believe, told them. That. Yeah, Tarek. So, yeah, that it could be turned into an ability restrictor, and they have a bit of a like a conversation about like, oh, is that ethical? Mm-hmm.
1: And I think like this is another like note on what I was saying before, but like Dex is comfortable with the idea of making weapons. He knows he's making weapons, and he's okay with it. Like, there isn't any kind of hesitation to him or, like, a kind of, like, oh, these are weapons that I'm making. It's like, nah. I'm making these and they're going to benefit our society.
0: Right. Yeah, maybe there isn't that, like, maybe there isn't that um, immediate conscious connection between, like, oh, I'm making these weapons and, like, oh, these weapons will be used to, like, to hurt specific people, but... It is like kind of striking that Dex is very that Dex is still very much like okay with that and okay with the idea of making an ability restrictor making other kinds of things, yeah, and I think this is like
1: this has always been one of my favorite part of Dex's character as well is like I like this is this is the section of the series that to me really like defines him as a slither and not to going back to the sorting Hogwarts has' his episodes, but like this was his. First, and like, this is the council paying attention to him. This is the first chance that he's ever being noticed in his life for something good that he can do. Why wouldn't he take it? Like, I, like, yeah, you go for it. And I think, like, this this can also be because, like, in the friend group, it must be kind of like we can all agree it would be kind of weird to be friends with Sophie, especially because she gets so much attention from the council. So if Dex was feeling that way, like, he could very easily, you could very easily say to Sophie, why do you always get to spend all the time with the, with the, uh, with the council? Like, why can't we be important for once in our lives? And like, he has, he has this dedication to his family, which maybe not bringing in here, but like bringing in later when, of course, this setup is resolved in the next section.
0: Yeah so the last few chapters of this section um concerned Sophie and Keith um this time. So it starts they meet at the Wanderling Woods and then they they do these um five light leaps with light from the unmapped stars which I just think is so cool. Like when I read Everblaze for the first time I thought that that was such a cool concept to like to like have um if you light leap with different stars, it feels different, and it'll like be able to take you to different places,
1: yeah,
0: and then I think we see this
1: later on in this series too, when Mr. Forkel talks about how they use different light of the unmapped stars for editing genes, like they talk about how those different qualities impact and affect the way that they manipulated genes and how they had to use a
0: specific light when they were testing out enhancer yeah, I think I think the unmapped stars. Really cool. They're a really cool concept, and man, I don't remember exactly like what each leap felt like, but like I think one of them felt like really sharp. Yeah. Um, one of them
1: felt like you were being like grated into sparkles or something like that, or like there were like thousands of molecules of sand like tearing you apart. Yeah, it is the the concept of unmy unmaps are are very cool. And they come up a lot in this section. We also see Sophie like implanting them all in Fitz's brain too. So it's a it's a chapter full of the unmapped stars.
0: Yeah, and then at the very end we have that um battle between the Black Swan dwarves and then the never seen um where we kind of learn that like that this whole thing and the Black Swan notes had been um had been planned and they were going to use Sophie and Keith to kinda of lure the Never Scene into a trap. And then Sophie and Keith ended up messing it up. Which once again, you cannot blame Sophie
1: and Keith for messing this up. Like <laughs> you sent them in completely blind. Like, what were they supposed to do? They didn't know that you wanted them to get whatever kidnapped, whatever their goal was.
0: Right, like, if you're going to be all mysterious and just not tell them anything about it, you really can't blame them when something goes wrong because they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, it's like, what what, what do you want them to do? I mean, I guess Sophie's a telepath, so technically. But, like, still. <laughs> Sophie's a telepath, so they could have, like,
1: had someone hidden on the island who telepathically told her that, hey... We are using you right now. Please stay quiet and let what happens happen.
0: But like, but yeah, it was, the whole thing was kind of, you can't really blame Sophie and Keith. No.
1: <laughs> They've been asking for a meeting for once and all you give them is this dumb meetup where they're the bait and they don't actually get to talk to you. Like, yeah, sure. Sure. Sounds like everything's going to go perfectly according to your plan. I see no flaws here. None whatsoever.
0: And it's like, I don't know, it's like, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but, like, I feel like a lot of the time, I understand that the black swans, like, they have to be a bit mysterious to, like, keep their identity secret so they're not tracked, things like that, but also, like, a lot of the time, I feel like being so cryptic like, really works to their detriment because if they just told Sophie and Keith what was actually going on this would not have happened.
1: Yeah, or even like we see this throughout this series where the Black Swan like if they had been more open like if they had told the council or told someone at the very beginning that there are like two separate groups or that hey we're not doing this then like things would be so much simpler and you could say the same thing for like Grady spending most of his adult life believing that the black swan killed Jolie like they just could have been so much clearer so I guess guess they do get better with that in the future but like they never come to see their previous cryptic cryptic crypticness as a downfall or as having a detriment effect
0: so that was the section. Um, let's move on to social media. So I, um, blah. <laughs> so you can find um, the podcast in general at KeeperCast on Tumblr or The KeeperCast on Instagram. So please send us messages. We'd love to hear from you. And you can find me at Melting on both Tumblr and Instagram. And I am at Everglendash Havenfield on Tumblr. This has been KeeperCast. See you next week!